Well, good evening. This evening we begin a new series of studies. We had just finished, actually, the epistle of Jude to the churches. And uh, as we got to the end of Jude, I realized we had started that series in the epistles many years ago in Romans and actually made our way all the way through Romans and all the epistles of Paul, making our way through Hebrews and James and Peter's epistles, John's epistles, and then finally to Jude. But now this evening we're going to begin a series of studies, and and what I like about these books, which we're going to study, is they give us a survey, really, of the whole Old Testament, because they recap and, and sort of present to us a view of the whole Old Testament in a very quick snapshot. They are, of course, the books of First and Second Chronicles. Now, this evening we'll be in First Chronicles, chapter 1, verse 1. We're only going to go through just a few verses, because I'm actually going to use this evening to give you the introduction to these books, and in particular, First Chronicles. Now, as we talk about First and Second Chronicles, we're talking about God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness. I think we need to hear that. Amen? God is faithful, and we're going to be looking at God's faithfulness in these books. And, and to understand this book, you really need to know why it was written, when it was written, to whom it was written, by whom it was written. And so what I'm going to do is just share with you a few things. But before we do that, let's just open in prayer, and we'll get right into the introduction. Oh, Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for our time of worship. We ask that you would help us to understand your word and the things that we talk about this evening. That as we look at all of your word, going back from the beginning, when you created all things, really pretty much all the way through to the exile and the return of the captives to Jerusalem. May we understand that you were faithful then, you are faithful now. You are faithful to your people, and these books bear that out. May we be reminded of your faithfulness, and may you help us and anoint us with your spirit that we might be faithful to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, the books of First and Second Chronicles were originally a single composition. In fact, the Septuagint translators divided them into two books called First and Second Chronicles, but they were actually one book. Uh, they called them, I won't give you the, 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 uh, the Greek, but basically they, they called them things passed over or omitted. Kind of like an appendix or an addendum. They looked at these books, that is the translators looked at these books, as sort of, well, anything we forgot is sort of put into these books. Uh, that's not really accurate, because you see, they saw First and Second Chronicles as a mere supplement to books like First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. But they're not a mere supplement. In fact, the word for chronicles means the events of days or times, and that was suggested by Jerome when they translated into Latin. But the books themselves have so much to offer us. The division of what we've talked about between First and Second Chronicles was transferred to the Hebrew Bible in the 16th century. We'll be looking at these books as they're written in our English Bibles, but they really are one book. Now, the writer of the 13th and 14th books of our Bible, our English Bible, is an anonymous compiler of earlier sources recorded by others. So this is someone who did their research, took all of the research that was available, all the history that was available, and compiled it for us, but with a purpose, with an intention to encourage us about God's faithfulness. Now, it is almost certainly Ezra the priest. Ezra the priest and the scribe who compiled the contents of these books. Most everyone agrees Ezra wrote them, or compiled them, I should say. 
Now, Ezra had an important role among the exiles that returned to Jerusalem after the captivity. He led a group of Jewish exiles to return to their homeland in 458 B.C. That is covered for us in the book of Ezra, chapters 7 through 10. He also worked with Nehemiah, who you're familiar with, I'm sure, to strengthen the commitment of the exiles that had returned, to strengthen their commitment to God's law, and that's covered for us in Nehemiah chapters 8 and 9. So Ezra features prominently in the later books that were written and included in our Old Testament. He recorded their history, he recorded the events that occurred among the exiles during his lifetime, but he also compiled these books as well. He no doubt authored the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, as well as First and Second Chronicles. Ezra and Nehemiah were originally written as one unbroken book in Hebrew as well, and now we've sort of separated them, but they were one book at one time. Now this shows that all four of these books were probably one composition in the original version, a history, a chronicle, which is really what a history is, a chronicle of God's faithfulness to Israel. And don't we need to be reminded of God's faithfulness to us? Now, Ezra must have written these books after he arrived in Jerusalem in 458 B.C., and he did it to encourage reform. He did it to encourage the people to give their hearts back to God. Now, the author refers to 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings as the books of the kings of Israel and Judah. They're referred to, but those are different books. They cover some of the same information, but with a completely different purpose. And so that's why it's important to study these books as well. In these books, the author makes free mention of all of his historical sources. I guess I remember when I used to do term papers. My least favorite part of doing a term paper was the bibliography. Remember that? And if you didn't get it right, I bid this, that, all these things. You had, I, I really didn't like that. But of course, if you don't have a bibliography, you can be accused of plagiarism. So Ezra made sure that he compiled this with a bibliography, and throughout the book we see references to his sources. Uh, I'm not going to get into all of them this evening, but we'll see when we get to the end of this book. He gives us the sources of his information. Because again, he's a historian. Some of what he recorded in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah he lived through, but most of what he recorded he received from other sources and presented to us, again with an intention to encourage us toward God's faithfulness. Now, the books of Chronicles were likely composed by Ezra early within what we call the intertestamental period. That is, the time period between the histories of the Old Testament and New Testament. And roughly spans 458 B.C. right up until the time of Christ. But these books were probably written before 400 B.C. Now, as we look at First Chronicles, the first nine chapters are usually skipped over by most people because they record genealogies. Most people are not thrilled with genealogies. I admit they're difficult to read. I'm going to teach them in such a way that I won't be reading through lists of names because I don't think that profits us at all. Uh, I will just prove that I can't pronounce most of them and that you're going to lose attention as you listen to me try. But the genealogies from Adam to the descendants of Jacob that returned from the exile in 458 are recorded for us in the first nine chapters and we will be there for a few weeks. Uh, Then we have chapters 10 through 29, which records the events during the 40-year reign of David. So we also, in 1 Chronicles, get a snapshot of the events that took place while David was king. And that was about 1010 and 970 B.C. Uh, 
When we get into Second Chronicles, that records the 432 years from the reign of Solomon to the Edict of Cyrus for the Jews to return to their homeland, and that is around 538 B.C. So there's a lot of information here. I want to go through this history in a way that you both learn history but are also encouraged to know that God is faithful. Can I hear an amen? So hopefully I'll be able to approach that. I'm certainly praying that God will give me the wisdom and the ability to do that. Now, they are called the books of Chronicles because they provide a compilation of historical events. So we're going to be jumping through history pretty quickly. But they're not a mere supplement, as some people felt they were, like the Greek translators. They're not a mere supplement to the parallel books of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. Not at all. In fact, I want to draw a contrast for you. These books, First and Second Chronicles, present a priestly history, very much a priestly history of Israel, while Samuel and Kings present a prophetic history of Israel. So the prophetic history of Israel is encapsulated in those four books, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, but the priestly history is given to us in these books, First and Second Chronicles. Interestingly enough, because the books of Samuel and Kings were, from a prophetic standpoint, their whole purpose was to convict Israel and bring them to repentance. The whole purpose of their writing was to convict Israel of their sins and bring them to repentance. Ezra doesn't write this for that purpose at all. He writes chronicles to encourage them and bring them to reform. So you see, sometimes you can look at history, and you can look at the failures of history, and you can use them to to bear out the things that need to be confessed, and the sins that need to be remedied, and the things that need to change. Or you can look at history and look at the things that, that prove God is faithful. And so you can look at the same histories and find different messages of encouragement and also of rebuke. And so... As we studied First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, we looked at a lot of rebuke of the prophets toward the people who were living in sin. But that's not Ezra's desire at all. It's many years later now. He's looking back at the history to say, look at how faithful God has been to us, despite our sin. So that's why it's so important you understand why the books were written and know how to study them so you can receive that encouragement from God. They also provide a history of priestly worship from Saul's death to the end of the Babylonian captivity. They record the history of the priesthood in Jerusalem beginning during the time of David's reign. And they emphasize, this is important, they emphasize only those aspects of Judah's history that illustrate obedience to the priestly laws. So this is really a very positive look at God's faithfulness, even a positive look at Israel and specifically the southern kingdom of Judah. They give prominence to priestly genealogies and to kings who faithfully worship God. If you sit around talking to a bunch of people who've just been through a captivity and exile, and they're coming back to Jerusalem to reestablish worship in their nation, and all you do is talk about the failures that got them there, they are not going to be encouraged toward reform. But if you look at the lives of those in history that did the right thing and how God was so faithful to them, that's encouraging for someone to pursue a relationship with God. Can I just say this? You have to be very sensitive when you present the gospel and share the word of God. You know, there are some people, we talked about this when we got to the end of Jude last week, there are some people you need to rebuke because they know better. 
And their danger is that they need to confess their sins and repent or they're going to be in danger of falling away. And so you may have to be harsh with them and and really instruct them in the word in a way that they're rebuked, like the books of Kings and Samuel do. Bring them to repentance. But then there are others that really just need to be encouraged in their faith. You know, as of late, I've noticed that the Lord has really led me to be very encouraging because we need the encouragement right now. Uh, Not that we don't need to be rebuked at times when we're caught in sin, but so many of us are struggling. So many of us are crying out to God. We're looking for God to encourage us. We need to be reminded of God's faithfulness. And so as I prepared these studies, I said, boy, this will be a great series in the histories of Israel just to be able to be encouraged in God's faithfulness. So in these books... They present the observance of the law of Moses as the way, the true way, to spiritual prosperity in Israel. If you will, that has to do with obedience to God's word. So we're going to be encouraged to obey God. And we need to be encouraged today more than ever. The author wrote to encourage these exiles who had returned to Jerusalem after their captivity in Babylon. In fact, these books, the books of Chronicles, can be truly characterized as books of hope. You want some hope? Can I hear an amen? Hope. You know, one of the things I'm getting a little tired of, and I've seen this, and I talked about this on Sunday a little bit, is it's so easy as a Christian to be doom and gloom. You know, it's so easy to look at the events of our world and say, oh, all is lost. All is not lost. God is in control. There's always hope. And there's hope today that God is working in our midst and in our nation and in our culture. Despite all of the sin and all of the, the ugliness of mankind, we can know that there's hope. They had been through an absolutely brutal experience that lasted decades, and they needed to be encouraged. Maybe we've been through a brutal experience that's lasted months to years, but we need to be encouraged as well. Now, what happens in these books is we trace the history of the nation of Israel from Adam to Judah's captivity and restoration. So the message is that of restoration, a renewal, an awakening, if you will. And the books trace the line of David to show that Judah remained faithful to God's covenant, which ultimately led to whom? To Christ. And we need to remember that. See, the nation of Judah had been set apart as true worshipers of God and identified as God's covenant people. God was faithful to his people, and ultimately his people were faithful to him. And as a result, Judah... The the tribe of Judah, the nation of Judah, was in the land. Christ is born within the tribe of Judah, and the Messiah comes to Israel at the end of the intertestamental period. But this leads up to that. This would have been encouraging to those people who returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. I mean, have you ever tried to do something with a naysayer around? You know, if you're ever doing a big job, a really backbreaking job, like pouring concrete. I don't know how many of you guys have ever poured concrete. You see all the bags, you mix the concrete, you think, oh, this won't take long. You put some concrete down, it feels like it doesn't even make a dent. And you just keep mixing concrete and mixing concrete. And it just seems like you're never going to get the patio done. It just takes a lot if you're mixing it yourself. If you bring a truck in, of course, that's not so, not so difficult. But if you're doing it yourself, it can be really, really discouraging. And you don't need someone sitting around and say, oh, man, this is going to take forever. We're never going to get this done. You know, send that guy home early. Nobody needs that. Nobody wants that. And clearly these books were designed to encourage, not to discourage. Now, much of what is recorded is found in the books of Samuel and Kings. It's true. But First and Second Chronicles are more comprehensive in their contents. 
they have more information that we wouldn't get if we didn't read them. In fact, 2 Chronicles includes little information about the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel. Because they were all wicked, every one of them. So there's no point in even mentioning them. If your intention is to encourage the people, you're not going to talk about the wicked kings. Uh, It includes a mostly positive account of the kings of Judah because its intention is not to call out sin, but to encourage reform. Uh, The selective history. Now, that's, that's the thing. There's a time when selective history makes sense. Not revisionist history, because that's what we have today. In our culture today, we're revising history for a purpose, and it's a wicked purpose. No, selective history is not necessarily talking about those things uh, that aren't pertaining to the point you're trying to make. So, like, I'm going to give you an example. When I was going to school, we studied American history. And we talked about Columbus, and we talked about the founding of America, and we talked about slavery. And we talked about the problems that existed in our nation and still, to some degree, exist today. I don't necessarily subscribe to this idea that there's systematic racism in our, in our nature, in our, uh, in our nation, in our culture today. But we have a history of racism, and we do, let's be honest. I mean, I was born in the 60s. Clearly, racism exists today and existed even more so then. Uh, when you go back to the founding of our nation, there were problems with that, right? There were. We know that. Slavery existed. It wasn't until much later, in the 18, late 1800s, 1860s, that slavery began to end. It really didn't come to a complete end right away. We fought a civil war to end slavery, among other things. So when we studied it, we studied Columbus. And, you know, today, there's sort of... Uh, the history is, is a selective history because what we're trying to prove is that he was a genocidal maniac, right? So they go and they pick out all the things that Columbus did that we don't like. When I was a kid, they did the reverse. He took a selective history because we were talking about explorers. We were talking about the discovery of America and the Western Hemisphere. And so we didn't focus on some of the heinous things that took place in the Caribbean as a result of the Europeans coming to the New World. By the way, I'll just point out they were just as wicked to their own people in Europe as they were to the people in the New World. But having said that, we we sometimes have a tendency to do what we call selective history. There's a time and place for it. If you're going to talk about the great injustices of our world, then clearly you need to talk about those things. If you're going to talk about the discovery of America, then maybe you're not going to get bogged down in some of those things. And I think the problem is we think we have to have this completely comprehensive history to the point where we cover everything, to learn history. And the truth is, while we're going to revise history, we don't want to leave important things out. If you're talking about explorers, you're probably not going to focus so much on those other things. If you're talking about the great things that America has been able to accomplish in the world, you're probably not going to focus so much on the things we got wrong. And there are many things we got wrong. So understand that it's not that there's something wrong with our history. It's that sometimes we approach it selectively for different purposes. And I hope that helps you to understand. It's not about racism. I hear a lot today about this critical race theory. I hear about sort of 1619 project, this idea of taking history and using it for a narrative. On either side, it is not a good idea to do that. But understand if we're studying a certain subject, selective history is appropriate. Okay, I hope that makes sense. And I think the problem today, I love history. I'm a student of history. But I know that depending on what history you're studying, you're going to have to be selective to some degree, depending on what you're trying to discover and study and analyze. So if we could just, you know, put the weapons down and stop shooting each other and realize, you know what? History has its place. All of history should be examined and looked at. 
and understood for what it is in the context and the content of what you're trying to study. It is possible to study this nation and see it's a great nation. It is also possible to study a selective history of this nation and see that there were many, many injustices against many different people groups. Are you with me? Can I hear an amen? Does that make sense? I just want you to understand, you know, that's important because we need to study all of history. We really do. And I think it would help if we just took the emotions out of it and just studied history for what it is, learn from the things we got wrong, learn from the things we got right, and continue to love this American experiment. Well, enough about that. So these books, they are designed to encourage, to encourage those that had come back to consider God's faithful promises to his people. This selective history reminded them of their glorious past and gave them hope for the future. It's good to do that in our culture today, to look at our glorious past and gain hope for the future. That's important, and they did this here for a purpose. Now, the book of First Chronicles is, is divided into two major sections, as we said. We have those genealogies, and we also have the reign of David. So this evening, we get into just the first four verses. and We're just going to look at what is uh, the genealogy from Adam, actually, to the sons of Noah. And then that will be our introduction for tonight. But now there's some good stuff in here, and I want to show you that genealogies can be fun. Can I hear an amen? Genealogies can be fun. I know you think genealogies, oh, why did I come out tonight? Genealogies, uh, I don't even do Ancestry.com. That's how much I don't like genealogies. Well, listen, I'm going to show you something. Okay, let's, let's take a few minutes here. We see in verses 1 through 4, that's it for tonight, 1 through 4. This is, and I'll read it for you, Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalel, Yared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This is basically just the genealogies from Adam to the sons of Noah. Eventually, we'll go through all the way to the sons of Israel or Jacob. But for now, tonight, we're just going to look at what is essentially Noah's genealogy and that of his sons, uh, the birth of his sons. So Noah's genealogy, uh, let's, let's recognize here that it is incredibly important to know the history of Israel. So as we look at just this first section, we know all about Adam. If you're familiar with the book of Genesis, you know Adam was created by God. He wasn't born, he was made, he was created by God. And as we get into Noah's genealogy, it starts with Adam and his son Seth. That's the genealogical line that we're looking at here. So we're not talking about Cain and Abel. We're just talking about the line of Seth. Now, Seth was born in the image and the likeness of his sinful father, Adam. Because Adam sinned, he became the father of sin, if you will. He really became uh, the, the head of all mankind in the sense that he brought sin. He and, his, and Eve brought sin into the world, and then their children inherited the sin nature. Hence, why we need a message of salvation. So you need to understand that about Adam. He brought sin into the world through his disobedience with his wife, Eve. Adam and his son, Seth. Well, Seth, again, born in the image and likeness of his sinful father, Adam. All of Adam's descendants, except Enoch, lived many years, many, many years. In some cases, nearly a thousand years. But they eventually died because the wages of sin is death, even though they lived for a very long time. The curse of sin was in full effect in the descendants of Adam. If you ever wonder about that, just understand, they all died. 
Sin brought death into the world. There was no death in the world until sin. So this idea that somehow there were millions and billions of years before Adam and Eve is just not correct because, you know, things didn't even die. People didn't die until sin came into the world. Now, Jesus was born in the image and the likeness of his holy father. Amen? He was not born in the image of Adam. He was born in the image of God because he is God. He did not have and does not have a sin nature. So he becomes the one man, because he's both God and man, that can save us from our sins. Adam couldn't. Adam actually brought us, brought the whole race, if you will, the human race, uh, into death, sin and death. Christ, the second Adam, as Paul refers to him, brought us out of sin and death. So there's a wonderful contrast. You have Adam brings death, Christ brings life. So he becomes, as we say, the second Adam. And it all starts with Adam in the garden. And then we go through Seth and his son Enosh, Enosh and his son Kenan, Kenan and his son Mahalal, Mahalal and his son Yared, Yared and his son Enoch. And then we get to Enoch and his son Methuselah. And there's a few things that we need to say about this because we're told in Genesis chapter 5, verses 21 through 23, that Enoch walked with God and was not. Now let me tell you a little bit about Enoch. He was born 622 years after the creation of Adam. Okay? Adam was still alive. In fact, Adam was still alive for the first 308 years of his life. I think we forget of the overlap of some of these lifespans. Adam was still alive for the first 308 years of Enoch's life. His special relationship with God began when his son was born. That is, when Enoch had Methuselah, this relationship began, this special relationship that he had with God. This may have been the result of a prophetic revelation concerning his son, for there was a prophecy linked to the death of Methuselah. And at this point, Enoch has this wonderful relationship, this special relationship with God. And at some point in Genesis 5, verse 24, we're told that God took Enoch away. What does that mean? It means that Enoch never died. It means that God took him away. He was Adam's seventh son, that is the descendant, taken by God 69 years before Noah was born. So we're getting closer to the time of Noah, and Enoch is taken away. He was accepted by God by faith and never saw death, according to the books of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 5. And This is what we're talking about. This idea that if you love God, as Jesus said, if you believe in me, you'll never see death. Well, Enoch believed, and he actually literally never saw death, whereas we will never see the second death in eternity. But he literally was not ever going to experience dying. Not at this time, at least. So, he is similar to someone else in the Bible you're probably familiar with, Elijah the prophet, who was taken by God as well. He never died either. That took place much later in the book of 2 Kings chapter 2. But Enoch prophesied God's judgment about midway between Abraham, uh, excuse me, Adam and Abraham, And Elijah prophesied God's judgment midway between Abraham and Christ. So these midpoints between these significant figures, Adam and Abraham, in the middle you have Enoch, Abraham and Christ, in the middle you have Elijah, and both of these men were taken by God. We do know from the books of Malachi and even the book of Matthew 
that Elijah, Elijah will return to the earth to preach again. He will. And that will happen before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Whether or not Enoch will return is a mystery. He may return with Elijah as one of the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11, or not. We don't know. Some people feel that it's probably Moses, who we're told died and was buried. And the interesting thing is it says God buried him, whatever that means. And it says they looked for his body, but they couldn't find it. So this idea that God buried Moses may simply mean that Moses also was taken, like Elijah, kind of begins to explain why, even in the time of Christ, on the Mount of Transfiguration, who appears but Moses and Elijah. If you look at the identity of the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11, the things they do, their, their, their ministry, the plagues, the turning the water to blood, sounds a little bit like someone we know, Moses. So I personally believe that it's Elijah and Moses. But Enoch is also mentioned as an alternate. You know, he sometimes talked about because he hadn't experienced death. And quite frankly, we just don't know. But one day we'll find out. Now, Enoch, we talked about Enoch recently because he was quoted within the book of Jude, in Jude chapter uh, 1, verses 14 through 15. There are, by the way, and I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, at least three apocryphal books attributed to Enoch. So uh, these books are not scripture. A lot of people are fascinated with them. Uh, They may have even preserved certain elements of Enoch's prophecies. Whether they did or not, we don't know. Jude quotes them to substantiate his argument, whether it's a you know, a scriptural source or not, there's no doubt. Enoch, the book of Enoch, not scripture, uh, more of a mythology than anything else. But these books were actually written shortly before the time of Christ. So they may have included truth, but they in and of themselves were not written at the time of Enoch or by Enoch. Very important to make that distinction. Okay, so we've talked about Enoch, interesting character in this genealogy. Now we talk about Methuselah and his son Lamech. Two more interesting characters in this genealogy of Noah. Methuselah was, as I'm sure you know, the oldest of Noah's ancestors. He was the oldest man who ever lived according to the Bible. He is the only ancestor to outlive his son, excluding, of course, Enoch, uh, because Enoch outlived his father, because Enoch never died. So let's just take him out of the equation for a second. So he's the only ancestor of Noah to outlive his son. Generally, what would happen is the father would die, the son would continue to live. He lived so long that his son died before he did. And Methuselah is, in fact, uh, known for being very old, obviously. Everyone says, oh, he's as old as Methuselah, right? Hopefully no one ever says that about you. Now, Lamech and Enoch are both named after older descendants of Cain. They have sort of similar names, and they're mentioned previously in the Bible. But only these two died or were taken while their fathers were alive. So, they're worth mentioning. Now, both of these individuals, uh, that is Enoch and Lamech, handed down fragments of their prophecies, as we'll see. Uh, When you look in Genesis 5, Lamech had a prophecy, and of course we talked about Enoch's prophecy in Jude. But I want to point this out. Now, follow me. Don't let me lose you here. Methuselah is a direct link between the Garden of Eden and the post-world, or post-flood world. By that, I mean Methuselah is the direct link between Adam and the sons of Noah. 
See, Adam was still alive for the first 243 years of Methuselah's life. 243 years of Methuselah being able to talk to Adam, communicate with Adam, get the creation story directly from Adam, an understanding of all that had taken place leading up to his birth in human history could be communicated directly by someone who saw it all. Why is that important? You ever play that stupid game, that telephone game? When you were a kid, someone whispers, and they say something, and then by the time it gets to the 10th person, it's completely different. Well, this is a direct link. Methuselah received all the things we know about human history directly by the man who saw it all. That's important because guess what? Methuselah was still alive for the first 98 years of Shem's life. 98 years. So he had 243 years to get all of the human history from Adam and 98 years to pass it on to Noah's son Shem. So when people say, oh, you know, history goes by and it gets passed on and it gets corrupted, one link between Adam and Noah's son, not even Noah, Noah's son Shem. So that takes away the argument that somehow history has been corrupted over thousands of years. It's just not true. And that's one of the reasons we can trust God's word. Amen? Now, the lifespans of Noah's ancestors averaged about 912 years, including Enoch, who lived a lot less on this earth because he was taken. In fact, most ancient cultures had traditions of early man's great longevity. This includes the Babylonians, the Persians, the Egyptians, the Hindus, and the Greeks. This, uh, there was a list which was excavated near Babel that listed 10 such kings of great ages. So you need to understand archaeology and history bear this out. Men and women lived a lot longer early on in human history. And this was, of course, due to the superior environmental conditions before the flood. It was a much easier world to live in in the sense that uh, the earth was shielded from a lot of the radioactivity and the neutrinos and things that cause aging. And then, of course, the genetic abnormalities and the genetic uh, corruption that takes place when you make a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. But before then, men and women lived quite a bit longer, as, we'll, as we've seen. Now, it's so important that you understand this. Methuselah is significant because when he was born, his father received the prophecy that in the year that he died, his son died, Methuselah, the flood would come. He died, Methuselah died, in the very same year that God flooded the earth. The very same year, the oldest man who ever lived died, the flood came. In fact, you may not know this, but in Hebrew, his name means when he dies, judgment. Or his death shall bring. So the prophecy was actually given concerning this man when he was a baby. And they named him after the prophecy. His death shall bring, or when he dies, judgment. In the year that Methuselah dies, the judgment comes upon the earth. His father Enoch may have prophesied God's coming judgment at his birth, and I'm sure he did. But I want you to think about this with me. The Lord allowed Methuselah to live a total of 969 years, the longest ever recorded. Now, does this not testify to the long-suffering of God? Just how long-suffering God is in bringing judgment. He's so long-suffering that the one man, he said, when he dies, judgment's coming on the earth. He was the longest, or the man who lived the longest, 
and he lived 960 years. So you see, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You can see the heart of God. Yes, I'm going to bring judgment. Where's judgment? I don't know. Methuselah still looks pretty good. Still going to the gym. Yeah, you see, this is the thing. When we, when we, when we realize all of these things point to God's mercy and his long-suffering. Not his judgment, but his long-suffering. Okay. Then we talk about Lamech and his son Noah. Noah, by the way, means rest. It sounds like the word for comfort in Hebrew. And Lamech prophesied God's promised rest and comfort through Noah at his birth. So another prophecy, this one came through Lamech, the other came through Enoch, concerning his son, his son Noah. Now the memory of God's curse on the ground was still fresh in their minds. Adam, of course, because of his sin, would be cursed. The ground would be cursed, and it wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't be easy for him to till the soil. And, of course, women were cursed. Eve was cursed, and women were cur- cursed with pain and childbearing. But you have this, this idea that the ground would be cursed because of their sin. And Lamech was one of those holy prophets that promised the restoration of God talked about even in the book of Acts. They were looking forward to Messiah coming and restoring all things, and Lamech was someone that brought that prophecy to bear. Well, when we talk about Noah and his sons, we're familiar with the three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and they're mentioned here in our text, and in verse, uh, actually in, in verse 4, right? So when we talk about Noah and his sons, I want you to understand that Adam's nine descendants were not necessarily the firstborn. The only reason these descendants were mentioned is because they're they're the ancestors of Noah. So there were other children. They had other children, many other children. But these were the most important because we're following a genealogy from Adam to Noah. Noah's siblings and their families were ungodly. They perished in the flood. Noah's other sons and daughters were ungodly. They perished in the flood. Yes, Noah had other sons and daughters. They did not make it because they were ungodly. Only three of his sons chose to go with him on the ark. There was Japheth, who was the oldest, or the elder, and Ham, who was the younger of the three. And we're told that in Genesis chapters 10 and 9. So we know Japheth was the elder, Ham was the younger. That means Shem was somewhere in the middle. Now, all of the personal names listed before the confusion of languages that took place at the Tower of Babel were quite similar. Because there was only one language. Does that make sense? They would all be similar, right? Of course, and they were. They seem to have a distinctive meaning in the Hebrew language, which implies, I can't say it proves, but it certainly implies that the original language of mankind was, in fact, Hebrew. Now, of course, that makes sense to us. But it was certainly some ancient language very much like Hebrew. Finally, I want to close with this thought. Some have suggested, and I'm not going to say that I can absolutely say this is true. So I'm just going to present to you the evidence. You can think it's really cool. You can think it's bogus. Uh, You can like it. You can not like it. It'll take me a second to present it. But there very well may be a hidden message in the original roots of each of Noah's ten ancestors. By that I mean that the meanings of the individual names, if they're translated into Hebrew and linked together in the order in which they're presented, give us what seems to be a prophecy of God's plan. Let me show you. 
Adam means man. Seth means appointed. Enosh means mortal. Kenan means, or may mean, sorrow. We're not entirely sure. Mahalel means the blessed God. Jared is, a, is from the verb that means shall come down. Enoch means teaching. Methuselah probably means, as we've said, his death shall bring, or uh, as we said before, Methuselah could also uh, have to do with judgment, his death shall bring, or when he dies, judgment. Uh, we have Lamech, which actually is interesting. It means despairing. Uh, Noah means rest and sounds like the word for comfort. If you take all of these Hebrew names and their meanings from their roots and you put them together, there could be, again, could be, a hidden message. And the hidden message would be this. Man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down teaching that his death shall bring the despairing rest. Interesting. That's all I'm going to say. Kind of interesting. But regardless of whether that is really the intent of the scripture, you can believe that it is true. Man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down. In fact, he has come down. Amen. Teaching that his death shall bring the despairing rest or comfort. So whether intended or not, the message is true. What I wanted to accomplish tonight is to encourage you that God is faithful, to give you all of the background of the book, and also show you that, again, genealogies can be interesting. They can be fun. There is information in some of these genealogies that if you just sort of ignore it and go over it quickly, you'll miss. My job, teaching this study, is to point out those things that you wouldn't want to miss, while rather quickly going through those things that we don't need to belabor. I pray you're blessed. I pray that as we study God's word, he gives you insight and encouragement, and most of all, encourages you that he's faithful. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for teaching us. Thank you for showing us the gospel in your word. Thank you for giving us a message of hope in desperate times, in difficult times, reminding us of your faithfulness, your goodness, and your love. For Lord God, as we cry out to you, we know that you hear us. Lord, encourage us. We pray that you are faithful. Encourage us. In Jesus' name, amen.